We're going to read the entirety of Exodus 12 this morning, but at 51 verses, it's going to be a bit too much to try to deal with on a verse-by-verse basis. So for those of you who like to outline things and make notes or appreciate some clarity on how a chapter divides uh, into main points, I want to give you the basic outline of the chapter before we read it. Verses 1 through 13, Moses receives from God the instructions for the Passover. God tells Moses, here's, here's what this is going to entail. That's verses 1 through 13. Verses 14 through 20 are the instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're not going to talk a lot about that, but uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is like a week-long uh, celebration that happens at the same time as Passover. And so those instructions are given there. Verses 21 through 28, Moses takes those instructions for Passover that he's received from God. And in verses 21 through 28, he, he passes those on to the people, explaining to them, here's what God has commanded. Verses 29 through 41, God brings the final plague on Egypt and redeems his people. And the final section, verses 42 through 51, Passover is commanded as an ongoing memorial, that they're to continue this annually to remember the events of the Exodus. Okay, let's read the chapter. Exodus chapter 12, the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little, For the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it upon the two side posts and upon the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs and the pertinence thereof. The entrails is what that means. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it. With your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. 
And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be for unto you for a memorial and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses for whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be a holy convocation. In the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them save that which every man must eat that only may be done of you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month of the 14th day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and 20th day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eats that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your habitation shall you eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. Then you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood upon the lentil and upon the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you according as he has promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service? That you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshiped. Then the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. And it came to pass that at midnight, the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their 
kneading troughs being bound upon the, up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and, and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent them such things as they required and they spoiled the Egyptians. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. Because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual or foods." Now, the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in, the, in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof, but every man's servant which is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall you break a bone thereof. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger shall... Sojourn with thee, and will keep the Passover to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. One law shall be unto him that is homeborn, and unto the stranger that sojourns among you. Thus did all the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. Just want to sort of tell this story, the background of this story, and to grasp this, the, the context of this passage really requires us to back up about 500 years. Yahweh called a man named Abram, out of idol worship, away from his family, into a covenant relationship with the creator himself. And Abram was promised, I will make of you a great nation. But in Genesis 15, verse 13, God also told Abram, know of a certainty that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and they will serve them and that nation will afflict them 400 years. Two generations later, Abram's grandson, Jacob, whom God had renamed Israel. Jacob, Israel, took his family into the safety of Egypt when there was a famine in the land that was deadly. And it's that way that the children of Israel ended up entrenched in the land of Goshen in the center of Egypt, a nation within a nation. When they first arrived... Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gladly took them in. He considered them to be a blessing to his kingdom. But that's where the book of Genesis ends 
And when the book of Exodus opens 400 years later, the situation has dramatically changed. Somewhere along that 400 years of history in Egypt, a new Pharaoh began to reign, a Pharaoh who did not see the children of Israel as a blessing to his kingdom. Instead, he saw this nation within his nation as a threat. Exodus chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 describe it. It says, he said to his people, look, the the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land, right? Fearing that the children of Israel would either revolt or escape, this wicked Pharaoh developed a threefold plans to keep God's people in line. First, he tried to break them through setting almost impossible tasks like um, using mortar, making, making bricks without the straw that's necessary in order to make bricks. Second, he encouraged the, the midwives to kill the Hebrew males. Like yeah, He told them, look, just like it, when, when you see that it's a male born, just just kill it, pretend that it had been stillborn or that it died unexpectedly. And they refused. And when those first two plans failed, when Pharaoh found that he could not crush the Hebrew spirit through hard work and he couldn't kill them off in secrecy, Pharaoh bypassed secretly and made an open proclamation commanding mass murder. He ordered that anyone in the kingdom finding a male Hebrew baby was to take it and toss it into the Nile River so that it drowned. Into this world, the child Moses was born. And in some technical sense, his mother, Jacobed, actually obeyed Pharaoh's command. She put her child into the river, although she did it in a little watertight basket meant to protect him, hoping beyond hope that God might spare her child. And truly, God did have a plan to spare her child and the children of Israel through that child. You can picture as the the swift current of the Nile River takes that basket downstream. It was guided by the hand of God. And there is this cluster of Egyptian women who were bathing in this slow pool in the bend of the river and they would have been puzzled to see this little basket bobbing up and down and floating its way down to them. The son of Jacobed would soon find himself in the arms of the daughter of Pharaoh. Now it's likely that Pharaoh's daughter at that point was a very young girl probably wanted to keep Moses as a kind of living doll, a a plaything. But in the providence of God, Moses spends the first 40 years of his life raised in the royal household, educated and skilled as a leader. But it seems like Moses always knew that he was a Hebrew. At age 40, when he saw an Egyptian taskmaster ruthlessly abusing a Hebrew man, Moses sided with his people and killed the taskmaster. 
It's possible that Moses expected maybe a grateful thank you from the Hebrews. It's possible he even saw this as the beginning of his opportunity to lead them to freedom. But Moses was quickly disabused of any of those notions when the Hebrews themselves were the ones who turned on him, started spreading the word that he had defied Pharaoh by killing their oppressor. No doubt. That experience was going to inform Moses what his life would be like later as he led these people. And so he fled from Pharaoh's hand. He escaped into the wilderness of Midian. He, he met a girl. He got married. He tended sheep. I'm pretty sure he tried to forget his former life back in Egypt. And, and the children of Israel, those people who so uniquely proved to be oppressed and oppressive at the same time. But God, remember, this is God's plan, right? He would not allow Moses to forget. And as Moses was tending sheep one day in the wilderness, his eyes were drawn to this strange sight up on the side of a mountain. There was a bush on fire and it just continued burning. The fire did not spread. The fire did not go out. And Moses decided, I have to see this for myself. And when he got up close, you know, God spoke to him out of that burning bush commissioning him to return to Egypt and deliver the children of Israel from bondage. God told him, I have, I have heard the cry of my people. Moses would be the tool in God's hand used to deliver the children of Israel. This time, not in his own murderous rage, but in a perfect plan that would glorify Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that great I am that I am, the one true God of all the earth would get glory. You see that purpose reflected in verse 12 of our text here in chapter 12. God says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That final plague against Egypt that we read about in Exodus 12 was just the culmination of God's plan and purpose to show himself to be the one true God over all the earth. When Moses returned to Egypt, he demanded the release of the children of Israel and he executed God's plan for justice against Pharaoh and his people. Every plague that God sent on Egypt was it struck to the heart of Egypt's pantheon of, of dead, useless, polytheistic idols. First, the Nile River was turned to blood, proving that all the river deities of Egypt were powerless before Yahweh. Frogs flooded the whole country, described as being piled up in, in just piles of dead, rotting frog corpses at every corner, all of them, looking sort of like the goddess Heket, the, the frog goddess that's worshipped in Egypt. The dust of the ground turned into gnats and mosquitoes like nothing you've ever experienced before. Next, biting flies plagued the Egyptians, but not the Hebrews, just the Egyptians. Yahweh protected that land of Goshen from his plagues. 
Then the Egyptian animals were diseased, but Hebrews were protected. The livestock of Egypt, which provided food and milk and clothing and transportation, were all falling down dead and dying as, as Yahweh proved, like, for example, Apis, their sacred bull god, has no power over Yahweh. The sixth plague was enacted when Moses entered Pharaoh's court and he, he threw two handfuls of ashes into the air. Listen, y'all seen LeBron James throw chalk into the air before a basketball game? He didn't invent that. Moses goes in and with Aaron, they throw hands full of ashes into the air. And when the ashes come down, it creates boils on the magicians and the people throughout Egypt and their gods of magic and healing could do nothing to help them. The next plague was hail that came to destroy the crops as Yahweh declared his power over all the sky and weather and fertility gods of Egypt. Then locusts, what little survived the plague of hail was, was devoured by swarms of locusts. Osiris, the fictional Egyptian god of crops, could do nothing to stop it. And then the, the ninth plague, without warning, struck against the most respected and most feared god of Egypt, its supreme deity, the, the head of its entire pantheon of worship, Amun-Ra, the sun god. Yahweh, the creator of the sun, would not allow his creation to receive his worship. And so Egypt was, was shrouded in darkness, not just a little dark, but for three days, a tangible darkness. Exodus 10.21 calls it a, a darkness that could be felt. Even artificial forms of light, like lamps or fires, did not give off light. It was so frightening. The description is the people would not even get up. No one saw another person's face for three days. And yet for all the power of Yahweh and all the plagues that he placed on Egypt, Pharaoh remained steadfast in his bitterness and control over the Hebrews. He would not let them go. And that sort of long backstory is what brings us to Exodus 12. In this chapter, God proclaims, explains, and executes his final plague on the land of Egypt. This time, not only is he going to prove that he is the all-powerful living God and all the Egyptian idols are powerless and lifeless, but it's also going to prove that Yahweh is the God who brings judgment on wickedness and provides salvation for his people. This final plague is a little different. It doesn't only address that whole pantheon of Egyptian gods and idols. It strikes at the very heart of idolatry by judging the unrighteousness in the hearts of men who make such idols. Pharaoh and the Egyptians had not glorified God. They were, as part of God's creation, responsible to him. They were responsible to love him and to uh, love others because that's the call of God. And yet what they had done is rejected him and oppressed others. And so God in in 
in addressing this is going to give them a small taste of what they had been doing. The Egyptians had passed a command that all the male Hebrew children would be killed. So God in his final plagues is the very firstborn of the Egyptians will be killed. Verse 12, I'll pass through the land of Egypt this night and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The Hebrews who had been kept safe in the land of Goshen in the middle of Egypt, the Hebrews themselves cannot presume upon God's protection. Their safety is only assured as they demonstrate faith in God's promise and obedience to his command. The instructions of God to Moses are are delivered to Moses. They're soon passed to the people through Moses. Take a lamb, a perfect little spotless lamb of the first year. Kill it. Catch its blood in a basin. Spread that blood on the doorposts of your home and then go inside and don't come out until morning. Verse 13 says, And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Vodi Bauckham puts this so very simply. The lamb must die, the blood must be applied, and you have to stay inside. The only safety afforded to you is trusting the promise of God that when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, since I trust the vast majority of you have some grasp of these events, and because we have limited time in our first service, now that we've set the background of the chapter, instead of going through it verse by verse, I just want to draw some basic ideas out of the text. What does this Passover story tell us? As the Hebrews huddled in their homes, covered by the blood of the lamb, what did God intend for that event to describe? I want us to see four certainties taught in the first Passover. Four certainties taught in the first Passover. First, Passover teaches that judgment is coming. Listen, without the certainty of impending judgment, the story of Passover loses its meaning. Without the real and present danger of God's wrath being poured out, what is it these people are even going to be saved and redeemed from? When Yahweh has poured out these plagues on Egypt so you know his power and he has done it exactly as he said he would do it so you know his plan, when that same God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and I will smite all the firstborn, you know it's true, it's certain, it's settled, it's unstoppable, judgment is coming. And by the way, this is God's judgment. You've probably seen an old Hollywood movie where a green mist goes through the land or you've heard a preacher describe how it's the, you know, the death angel as if there is some specific angel just chomping at the bit, waiting to be unleashed against the Egyptians. Well, without any clear word, I guess I could say maybe Maybe that's how God did it. But what we can say with certainty is however God did it, God did it. 
Look at verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt. Verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So as God tells Moses the instructions, he says, this is what I will do. Later, when Moses passes those instructions to the people, look at verse 23, the Lord, that is Yahweh, will pass through to smite the Egyptians. Moses says, this is what God's going to do. And then when the events actually transpire, verse 29, it says it came to pass that Yahweh smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The judgment that is coming is not the wrath of some impersonal idol or half-involved deity. God is judging the sin of idolatry and oppression. Egypt had failed to love God and to love their neighbors, and God is rightly angry with such a display of wickedness. And he is righteous in bringing his wrath and justice universally against all people. Look at verses 29 and 30. It came to pass that at midnight, the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the cattle, Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Some might think, man, I'm glad I don't live back in the days of Exodus. Well, me too, but not because of this. Is God's judgment somehow less certain today than it was in Egypt in Exodus 12? Scripture is clear that God's wrath is declared on all and it's over all and it misses nobody. God's wrath is poured out on all of Egypt. Verse 29 describes it from the throne room to the dungeon. Whether you are a king or a convict, you are under the wrath of God. Because all have sinned and comes short of his glory. The judgment of God is on princes and paupers alike. And the same God who poured out the plagues on Egypt, according to his word, is the same God who executes this final plague, according to his word. And it's the same God who promises in his word now that judgment is coming over the whole world, including you. There is not one corner of this globe that is going to be missed. Passover taught that the judgment of God is coming with certainty. And that is a valuable lesson for us today. Second, Passover teaches God has a plan for salvation. In the first section of this chapter, God tells Moses that here is the plan to protect my people. And starting at verse 21, Moses faithfully declares that plan to the people. Verse 21, Moses calls the elders of Israel and said unto them, draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that's in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. We might be tempted to think of God's wrath in the terms of our own arrogant human wrath. Many times what happens is we strike out in anger and then we try to figure out how to deal with the consequences of what we've done. 
But when you read this book of Exodus, you are certain that God's plan to save his people from his wrath is by no means an afterthought. That's why we need to know the part of the story leading up to Exodus 12. Over 500 years before, God had told Abram, your descendants, they're going to be in a land that is not theirs and they're going to be oppressed. And after 400 years of that, I'm going to bring them out. What Passover teaches the children of Israel is that the culmination of God's plan of salvation must be displayed in their obedient faith as they listen to Moses explain God's plan for their protection, it's first going to require that they have enough faith in God's command that they know that the wrath of God is coming. Otherwise, what do they need to be saved from? And also have enough faith to know that God is a God of mercy because you've got no hope except that God willingly withholds his wrath from you. They had seen God's wrath, but as they, these people listening to Moses, they, they had not experienced his redemption. All they knew in their life was oppression and slavery. But if they trust his word that judgment is coming, they can also trust his word that salvation is planned. When God says, kill the lamb, apply the blood, stay inside, faith brings them to obedience to that plan. Because third, Passover teaches their safety in the blood. Verse 13, the blood shall be unto you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on to you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Let's be clear about this. When the Hebrews applied the blood to the doorposts of their house, It was a sign of faith in God's promise. And when God saw that blood as a symbol, as a token of their faith, his wrath passed over that household. There was nothing in some dried lamb's blood that by itself has the power to deter God from the wrath he intends to pour out. But that blood that's on the doorpost was the very sign of God's purpose that he would pass over that house because the blood was a testimony of their faith. Verse 13 even calls it, it's a a token. It's a sign. It's a symbol. It's a picture of something greater is what that means. Maybe you've seen the, the classic picture, I almost bet one of you has it in your Bible this morning, that, that classic picture of a Hebrew man putting a little bit of blood on the, above the doorpost and there's a little spot of it on the side of the door. Let me ask you, if the life of your firstborn child was at stake, or you understand some of the people who were going to be in that house, the adults were firstborn in their own families. They were in danger. If you or your child were in danger, how much blood would you have put on the post of the door? I'm going to say it would be more than just a little bit of mark that gets put in the picture. I'm applying the blood in a way that says, when God comes in wrath, it's the blood of the lamb that I want him to see. There's safety in the blood of the lamb. The Hebrews that night believed it because they believed God's promise. Now, 
they might not have each believed it in, with the exact same amount of confidence, right? D.A. Carson makes an excellent point when he talks about this, and he noted that the, the relative confidence of the Hebrew families probably wavered a little bit from house to house. I mean, in one house, you've got a man who's brought his family inside. He's slaughtered the lamb. He's applied the blood. He had complete confidence in every moment of that process. He almost has a a bring it on mentality so that if you asked him, are you scared? His answer would be, no, I'm not scared. God has spoken. I trust God. And in the house next door, you asked a different man the same question, and his answer would be, well, you'd have to be stupid not to be just a little afraid, right? Of course, I slaughtered the lamb, and I applied the blood, and we're going to stay in the house, but it's scary. You've seen what's been going on lately. There's been boils and, and locusts and darkness, and now this. Yeah, I trust God, but I admit I'm a little afraid. I'm going to be glad to see this night over. And so when the Lord passes throughout Egypt and comes to those two houses, which of those houses was spared his judgment and wrath? Both. Both were safe. The salvation from God's judgment and his wrath is not based on the sheer force of will that you might muster up and place behind your faith, The salvation from God's judgment is based solely on the willingness of God to see the blood of the lamb and be satisfied. To see the blood of the lamb and pass over us. Fourth, Passover teaches God's got a plan for the future. Look at verse 25 through 27. It shall come to pass when you come to be in the land which the Lord will give you according as he's promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you will say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshiped. You recognize, I hope, the grander scale of this Exodus story. It is not simply that God brought them out from a bad place, but he had designed to take them to the best place. Verse 25 tells us that Passover includes the expectation that you will come into the land that the Lord has given you. They weren't just being saved from something, they were being saved to something. One of the sad failures of the children of Israel was their attitude in Exodus as it appears to be after they're brought out of Egypt. Lord, thanks a lot. Now leave us alone, would you? Because soon they're going to be making a golden calf and worshiping it. They're going to spend a generation wandering in the wilderness because while God removed them from Egypt in one night, it's going to take 40 years to take Egypt out of their hearts. And so to that end, this observance of Passover that's commanded in Exodus 12 isn't going to end that night. It's going to become 
God says it's going to be like this ongoing rhythm of your life. The very beginning of the chapter actually tells them, look, the month this happens, that's the beginning of your year. I don't care when everybody else starts their year. This is when your year starts. Have you ever felt like you can count and see the passing of every year because every year some particular holiday or birthday comes up and you can see, okay, this is the rhythm of years passing? That's what Passover is meant to do for them. Verses 25 through 27 says they're to keep this annually. It's a teaching tool to pass this truth of God's plan of salvation on to the next generation. God did not give them the option of calling it quits after he brought them out of Egypt that night. And I'm sure there's some people who did not enjoy Passover. Some of them might ask, well, why? Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to keep on doing this? I mean, after all, Exodus is done. It's, it's over. Why do we have to keep retelling that story? And the first answer is that, well, you have to remember what God's done for you. But the greater answer, of course, is that it is not over. It's not done. The Passover teaches there is a future in God's plan. Remember how God told them that that blood was a token, it was a sign, it was a symbol, it pointed to something greater. Well, someday, generations down the road, they need to have this story ingrained in them because the day is coming where John the Baptist is going to point to Jesus and say, look, that is the Lamb of God. And that Lamb of God is going to be slain and his blood is going to be poured out. And through faith in him, when God looks on us in wrath, he will see the blood of Jesus and pass over us. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, says that even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Through Jesus Christ, our Passover, we know God's judgment is coming. We know there's... God's got a plan for salvation. We know that there's safety in the blood of the lamb, in the blood of Jesus. We even know that God's plan involves a future for us. We're really not much different than those Hebrews who were huddled inside of their houses on the night of the first Passover. We live by faith in God's word that his salvation is going to be provided through the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, and, and that he's brought us that salvation in the present. And we look forward to the ultimate redemption in him that we expect is soon coming. That's what Passover is about for us.